Good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. I told some friends that are here for the final four, Luke chapter 12 is Luke chapter 11 this morning. Um, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be looking in verses 29 through 31 this morning. I want, to, I want to share something I'm really excited about that's going on in the life of the church right now, and that is our deacon ministry. If you're a deacon at First Baptist New Orleans, would you do me a favor real quick? Would you just stand right where you are? I want your church family to see who you are, just so they know that we have deacons that are serving in our church. See them sc- scattered around? Yeah, it's fine to clap for them, absolutely. You guys can be seated. I'm so excited about our deacon ministry because just this week on Monday night, we had our our monthly meeting. These guys meet on a regular basis each month uh, for a time of just spiritual encouragement, of prayer. They pray for you, but also of talking about ministry. And they right now are developing strategies in order to take care of of you, our faith family. They're prioritizing caring for some of our our most vulnerable, some of our senior adults, our widows, and those that are homebound. Uh, of being sure that, 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 that no one is forgotten and, and that we love one another deeply as we're called to in Scripture. They're also doing practical service like helping with needs, uh, a benevolence team that's helping to, to meet practical needs in the, in the family of our faith. And then also of just doing hospitality, of being sure that we take care of every guest. And so many of our deacons serve as greeters on Sundays, as those that help to serve the Lord's Supper. I mean, all of these different things that are going on. But this week, you know, one of the things that just really impacted me was we, we were reached out to by someone with our convention, the Louisiana Baptist Convention. And one of uh, the children of a missionary family that grew up in, in Tanzania um, has moved back and she's now an adult, but, but had just had their first baby. And the baby was born at 22 weeks, just a little over one pound. And, and the baby is now, I think, 12 weeks old, um, has been surviving, but had to be flown down here to, to New Orleans to go to Children's Hospital. And so they called and said, or, or reached out and said, hey, is there any way that, that First Baptist could, could help this family, this young couple that's had their first child, is in the NICU, all of these things. And one of our deacons immediately rose up to that occasion and went with me to, to do a hospital visit to spend some time with them, but then also opened up his home and said, hey, rather than you having to spend a bunch of money, um, you know, finding arrangements down here, why don't you stay with us? Um, and that sort of hospitality is exactly what ought to characterize pastors and elders, but also the deacons in a thriving biblical church. And so I just want you to see those are the things that go on behind the scenes. Um, that's the stuff that, you know, we don't, you know, sing our own press, um, you know, about all the things that are going on. But I think it's important for us to know that our deacon ministry is thriving and that it has substance to it and it's really caring for the body and caring for those needs that we become aware of. So anyway, so join me in, in thanking those guys. When If you know a deacon, thank a deacon, all right? Because they are doing a wonderful ministry. This morning, we turn it back in, in God's Word, and we're walking through the Gospel of Luke in this, in this sermon series I'm calling Walking with Jesus. And again, it's eight weeks long, so we're not looking at every passage. There's 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and so there's no way that we could go through it all. And one of the things I've become convinced of as a preacher is that even if I took time to go through every word of every verse, I would get to the end of chapter 24 and say, I only scratched the surface. Because there's no preacher that can fully mine out all that there is in the riches of God's word. So we're doing kind of an overview. We're walking through some key passages, but I hope that it's having its impact. That as we're walking through and looking at the gospel of Luke, it's deeply impacting us and helping us to truly walk more faithfully with Jesus. 
And so today we come to a passage that enters into another large section of text where Jesus has kind of set his eyes toward Jerusalem. And we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We're going to be looking at that in just a couple of weeks. In fact, we have a Good Friday service that's not this coming Friday, but the next um, that I want to invite you to. That's going to be a time of us looking at a couple of chapters in the Gospel of Luke, just reading, hearing God's Word read, of, of meditating on His Word, and really considering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So that's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be focused on as a church on Good Friday, during our Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. that evening. And so he set his eyes to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen there, and he starts making movement there. So everything that's taking place now in the Gospel of Luke is kind of preparing people more for this climactic moment. There's there's more intensity in his teaching. Um, There's more um, firmness in his rebukes. Um, all of these sort of things because it's now moving toward this. The beginning of the Gospel of Luke is a lot of record of his miracles, of the things that he's been doing, the healings, the casting out demons, all of these things that really kind of draw a crowd. And it's with that crowd understanding that there's a crowd that's been increasing. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word because when, when we turn to God's Word in this way, this is not Chad's thoughts about Jesus. This is God speaking to us with authority about the nature of his son. And so listen to the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this passage today. Thank you for the words of Jesus that pierced a generation 2,000 years ago, and I pray the same result today, that the words of Jesus will pierce our generation, those of us who live today, and remind us that what has been given in Christ, what is available to us by the gospel is what we most need. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. As the crowds were increasing, if there's any kind of goal that I think most ministries set for themselves today, it's that, that the crowds would increase. That becomes a metric by which we kind of gauge success. I mean, like, there's, there's all of this psychological data that's kind of like that, that, that speculates on the nature of crowds. And, and there's even some little funny videos. I got one probably about a year ago that somebody sent me that said, you know, watch this. And there's a guy just kind of standing by himself and he's kind of jumping around and acting kind of crazy. It looks like they're at a music festival or something like that. And then just one other person runs up and joins him and they both start jumping around. And then before you know it, another person joins and then another person and another person and another person. And then before you know it, I mean, it's like a, it's 
it's like a mob. And they're all just like jumping around. And I can guarantee you, none of them know why. They're, they're just doing it. They're just all jumping around and all this kind of stuff and just acting crazy. And it's this crowd all of a sudden. And, and isn't that the way of it? I mean, like, you know, when it comes to Black Friday sales, you know, it's like, man, look at that huge line. You know, like, maybe I need to go there. I don't know what I need, but it must be something really good there. You know, and we look at numbers. We look at crowds and we say, well, there must be something there. There must be something good. There must be something that I need. There must be something to see. And that's what was happening in Jesus's day. He was doing good work. Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was teaching and teaching with authority, an authority that was capturing the hearts of the people. And so the crowds were increasing. And what you expect at every turn where we see the crowds increasing is Jesus kind of convening with his disciples and be like, guys, it's going pretty good. That This is what we want. Our, our strategy for growth is working. But at every turn, and you can see the you know, the, the, it leaves the, the disciples, you know, baffled at times. That, that in these climactic moments, we, we read over in John, you know, where the, 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 the number is increasing and then Jesus comes to them and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciples. And it says, and, and many went away. And the disciples are like, Jesus, your message, it's difficult. You know, like you can see them wanting to say, it's really bad. It's not working. It's, it's having the negative effect. People are walking away, but they say it's difficult. <laughs> you know, a kind way. It's difficult. It's difficult. And this passage is no less difficult. This passage was, is no less difficult for us today as it was 2,000 years ago because it's a passage that really kind of rebukes a people like you and me that Jesus gives clear commentary on. And so what does he say then, and is it relevant today? Well, first of all, and I'm going to use current application terms, but the past tense is also true. So the first thing that we see here today is Jesus knows us. And the reason we know that Jesus knows us is he knew them. He knew them perfectly well. He, he called their number. He knew exactly what was going on in his own day. He was aware of the hearts of men. As crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation, speaking to his current audience, speaking to Jewish people who were following him, speaking to a crowd, people that you would think are, are those that want to be with him, he says, this generation is an evil generation. This generation is an evil generation. Now, a lot of us in this room, when we hear that description, a description that Jesus was using, then we might quickly look around today and say, saying, this is an evil generation. We look around and we see things that we say, man, that flies in the face of God's word and his standards. This is an evil generation. We look at, at all of these aspects about what we would call the sexual revolution, and we might look out around us and say, this is an evil generation. We might look at all of the violence and all of the theft and all of these things going on around us and say, this is an evil generation. 
But to take such a perspective, to just look around us, is to miss what Jesus was saying then, and it misses the point that we need to hear today, that this is an evil generation. You see, it's only those who nod their head when considering that you are part of an evil generation. It's those who have the inability to affirm and say, yes, except for the grace of God, that truly are the ones that Jesus rebukes. You see, Jesus sees those that were right there gathered around him. Jesus isn't just trying to get more followers by saying, man, y'all are in the safe group away from this evil generation out there. He is speaking to them and rebuking them. But I want you to consider for just a moment because that's the kind of rhetoric today that gets you canceled. This is an evil generation. You are part of an evil generation. That's the kind of stuff that's like, whoa, that's a little heavy-handed. Instead, shouldn't we use more positive rhetoric that you have great potential well, if Jesus were to use that language, he'd have to end it. You have great potential for evil. You say, well, you know, you know, we're the next generation. Jesus used that rhetoric. He'd say, you're the next generation of, of evil. You know, we're, we are the hope of tomorrow. If Jesus used that rhetoric, he'd say, the hope of tomorrow is going to be more evil. You see, left to ourselves, apart from Christ, we would pursue all manner of evil. We need to wrestle with the fact of like, what keeps us from a continual Holocaust state? A state in which we constantly oppress and kill one another. What, what keeps us from, from constantly seeking war? What, what preserves us and allows prosperity and health? Uh, what, what allows us to keep living and pursue medicine and education, and career advancement. You see, it is those who see and know that I am an evil person apart from the grace of God. It is those who carry the message of the hope of the world. It is those who walk forward acknowledging that apart from the grace of God, there would be no good in this world. You see, it's God in his goodness that causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There's a merciful, gracious God behind all the good that you and I experience in this life. It's not because of us, it's despite us that there is good in this world because of God and his goodness. You see, Jesus looks rightly at us and he says, this is an evil generation. And he knows that it is bound up in yours and my heart, this evil condition. He talks about it clearly in Mark chapter seven, that it's from the heart that come all of these evil, wicked things that we do. And I want you to consider this. Jesus knows us and yet he loves us. I mean, think about what's more powerful. Is it more powerful when a person doesn't really know a person, that they've been deceived, that they believe in maybe some false version of a person, and they love them? They like them a lot. They, they want them. But then when they see the real person, they reject them. 
Or is it more powerful to see a person as they are, at at their worst, at their weakest, bringing nothing and say, I love you. I don't love you because of what you bring, because of what you can do for me. I love you despite all of those things, and I will redeem you. I will take all of that bad, and I will work it to good for my glory and your good. You see, there's a a greater love that is on display in this clear indictment. This generation is an evil generation because what Jesus continues to do. He doesn't then say, I'm turning away from Jerusalem. No, he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem, knowing what he must do for this evil generation. To understand today, Jesus sees you. He knows the potential that you have for evil, and yet he loves you, and yet he loves you. But what was it that made them an evil generation then? Is there any similarity between their state, those within the church, those that were within the Jewish community? Remember, he's talking to those that are on the inside, not not just looking out at the Gentile world. In fact, he's gonna use the Gentile world as an illustration of what is good. Here again, just like we considered last week, he goes on and says, it demands a sign. You see, Jesus knows what we want. Jesus knows what we want. He knew what they wanted. They demand a sign. They demand a sign. You see, what we see from the Jewish people then, the people that were following Jesus, is that he would do something, and like a toddler, they would say, did you see that? Do it again. And then he would do something, and then they would say like a toddler again, do it again, do it again, do do some more, do greater, throw me higher. That's what the people wanted. He knew that they demanded these signs, that even though he had cast out demons to demonstrate, I mean, think about the reason he's doing it. Is he just doing it because people don't need demons in them? Like a, a demon extermination company? Or was he doing it in order to demonstrate his authority over it? I mean, Jesus is is healing the sick. Is it as though he has cast out all disease from them so that they will never die? There's no one with us still today from them. So, So why was he healing? To show his authority over it. The day that he calmed the storm, was it because that Jesus just really didn't like bad weather? Or was it to demonstrate to his disciples he had authority over the storm, over all of the elements? You see, Jesus over and over again through all of these things is doing things so that we can see it to know that he has authority. But if we miss the point, then what are we going to want? Just like the people we're gonna see, we're gonna want to see more and more signs, more and more evidence of what he can do. We're gonna want the show to go on. Well, you say, well, what does that look like today? How might it be that that we want a sign? Well, a lot of us want a sign that God is for us by looking at our bank account. We want to see that God is for us by, God, we give you $10 and you give us $100. 
And we turn God into an investment scheme where you put in and then you get much more out, almost like gambling. We, we turn God into, God, we want a sign that you love us by our healing so that we are able to speak healing over one another and everyone is healed. And if not, then that's a sign that we are weak in faith rather than, or, or, or that the person who is sick is weak in faith versus us being weak in faith and being like this evil generation demanding a sign. You see, just like then, so today, we become a generation who want Jesus to show off and to do these extra things for us today, to bless us materially, to bless us with our health, to give us power and affluence and raises and promotions and all of these things, and that to be the sign. And Jesus looks at us and he says, this is an evil generation. And just as a reminder, that is a large number of those who today in America are professing to be Christians. That is the case. The health and wealth gospel is a large part of the confessing Christian population in South America. And that is becoming a large segment of the population in Africa is a health and wealth gospel. Jesus, show me a sign. Show me a sign. And Jesus says, this is an evil generation because they demand a sign. But then look what he says. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah because Jesus knows what we need. Jesus knows what we need. Isn't that good news for us today? That Jesus knows what we most need. I mean, think about it like from a parent's perspective. You know, the battle between healthy things for your child and unhealthy things for your child. You know what your child wants. They want the donut every morning. But as a parent, you know that a donut every morning for your children, it's not good. There's, it's kind of a, it works against being, you know, nurtured. And, and made healthy. It's a treat, but it can't be all they live on. But man, don't children demand a sign. <laughs> when they want that sweet, sugary treat for breakfast every morning, they can at times really drive their heels in, demanding that thing. I want you to see how we become like children in our demand of Jesus, but Jesus lovingly sees us and knows what we need, and he gives us what is most good for our thriving. You see, every parent in that battle to get their kids to eat a little healthier, to, to be nourished, knows that there's greater good on the other side, knows that their child is going to is gonna function more fully, is going to be more clear-minded, isn't going to go through the sugar highs and lows uh, their, their child is gonna be healthier, be able to run faster, maybe think more clearly in school. All of these things, all of these promises of better nutrition on the other side, even though in the moment it's very difficult and there's rejection. Even though it takes maybe some time to really grasp fully the benefit of health, parents know that on the other side, 
there is great gain in nutrition. Jesus, so much more than just bodily nutrition, knows that what your soul and my soul need is him. And look how he says it as he goes through here. He starts walking through, and what he first says is, we need the burial and resurrection of himself. Look how he says it in verse 30. Just For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now, Jonah, we've talked about before. We looked at, at that prophecy, this prophecy that, that came to the people of Assyria, to the, to, to the Ninevites, and, and they come, and this is a, a really, really evil, wicked people. If we had more time today, we would go through and we would say all of the evil aspects of what they would do to people. How, you know, it's even recorded that they would fillet the skin off of people alive that they took captive. I mean, like that sort of barbaric, horrible treatment of humanity was what the Ninevites were known to do. And so here you have Jonah being sent to them. But what's this idea of a sign? You know, you might expect that Jonah's gonna bring the message. You know, the, none will be given to them except the message of Jonah, which was repent, 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 repent. And we're gonna see that a little bit later right here, but what is this idea of the sign of Jonah? What's that's going to be given? Because it says, will be to this generation, future tense. So it's not yet there. So Jesus' teaching in this moment is not what they most need. And it's not even the healing and the, and the deliverance from demons that they most need. What they most need that Jesus is pointing to is his burial and resurrection. Because what happens to Jonah? How does Jonah become a sign? Jonah becomes a sign of the grace of God because what happens to him is he runs away from God and he gets in a boat, and the boat is experiencing the wrath of God on the angry seas because of his sin of running away from God. And the, and the judgment of God comes on Jonah in this moment where he is thrown out of the boat and into the water to die a watery death. But the grace of God is seen in the fish. The, the grace of God to Jonah is seen in the fact that he should be dead in the water, but God sends a big fish to swallow him and holds him there for three days. And in those three days, we read in Jonah this crying out to God, this repentance of Jonah, who then is spit out onto dry land to then go to the Ninevites. And so what is the sign the sign is that there is going to be a death, a pouring out of wrath, but then also this swallowing of grace. That Jonah becomes this, this sign to the people of exactly what God does with sin. He pours out his wrath on it, but in that very act of pouring out his wrath on sin, the tomb becomes the way that he shows his grace. That Jesus enters the tomb for you and for me. That Jesus entered death for you and for me. Jonah himself becomes this one who was sinful, deserving the punishment of God, death. But through being swallowed up in death, as it were, was saved and brought to life. Jonah himself standing there, a sinner saved by grace. 
And that grace coming through a tomb, that grace that would ultimately be realized, because remember, it's Jonah is a sign. He's not the substance. He's a sign of what Jesus would do, where Jesus would bear the wrath of God for our sin, that he would experience death that you and I deserve, and for three days be in the tomb, but then on the third day be raised to life again. None will be given in it except the sign of Jonah. And what Jesus is saying is that is what you and I need because an evil generation needs the death of an evil generation. Those with evil hearts need the death of an evil heart. They need this heart of stone, this this heart of evil to be removed and a heart of flesh to be given. An evil generation needs their sin swallowed up and dealt with once and for all. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. But he doesn't stop there. He then goes into verse 31. And there's a lot that's going on here, but I want us to see something. In verse 31, he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. Number one, there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. In the definite article here, the the judgment speaks to a once and for all judgment that will come. Where all, all will rise and all will experience the judgment of God against sin. Let that awaken you. Let that be a reality for you that orients your life, that one day you will stand before the living God and you will give an account for this life. And only those who are hid in Christ will experience the forgiveness of God for all of eternity. But if you stand before him in your own righteousness, a self-righteousness, you will be condemned for all of eternity away from God into a place we know as hell that is suffering and is completely devoid of any goodness. The rain does not fall on the unjust in hell. There is no common grace in hell. There is only the absence of good. There is only the absence of God. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Number one, this would have jolted the original audience. The queen of the south was a Gentile. She was not part of the community of God, but here she is standing up with the men of this generation and condemning them. What gives her the right? What gives her this ability to condemn this generation in this moment of being able to stand, as it were, with the righteous? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This pointing back to the Old Testament when Solomon was king following his father David. And Solomon, in a dream, in a vision with God, not wanting just the increase of wealth, that sign that God is with me, not just the increase of more territory, that sign that God is with me, not just even wanting more authority and more power, that sign that God is with me. No, he wanted wisdom. He asked for wisdom that he might rule and lead the people of God rightly. And God granted to him wisdom such that there was no one wiser ever than Solomon, revered in his day, so revered that people from 
like foreign lands would travel at great expense to themselves of time and resource to come and to learn and to hear his words of wisdom. And Jesus says, there is something greater than Solomon. Notice he says something and not someone. So this isn't just a personality contest. Solomon versus Jesus. This is Jesus saying, the wisdom that I bring is greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Because Jesus is, he himself, the wisdom of God. You see, we need the wisdom of Jesus. This is what Jesus is making clear. We need the wisdom, this understanding of how to be rightly related to one another and rightly related to God. We need that wisdom that only comes from Christ and is only available Look at the, the, the sequence there through the burial and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the sign we need to be able to look and behold the wisdom of God that is only revealed in Jesus Christ so that, keep going, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. So what do you and I need? We need to hear the gospel of repentance and faith. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus is dealing with people, people who, like you and me, have come close, who are gathering around him. We're part of the crowd. And he speaks to us in love, and he says, this is an evil generation. Don't underestimate the influence that our generation is having on us. Don't don't underestimate the influence that such material prosperity, greater material prosperity than the world has ever known is having an influence on you such that what you are likely to demand of Jesus is more material gain. That's the spirit of the age, is to have more, to buy more, And so don't be surprised if that creeps into our belief system and that's what we do to gauge. I mean, if you wanna test yourself, if you wanna test yourself of that influence, ask yourself, do I immediately assume that if there's someone in my faith family that's doing well financially, that God is blessing them? Is that my equation? That financial provision is just always God's blessing. Like God's hand is on that person. They they must be doing something right. And if the answer is always just an unequivocal yes, unless proven otherwise, I always equate financial, financial prosperity with they must be doing something right. Maybe they're a spiritual leader. That becomes an indicator for us, our generation, that we bought, we've bitten the hook. We've bought into the lie. And we are very likely demanding of Jesus a sign of prosperity in our day. We need to be on guard against such things. We need to be on guard because we are podcast consumers. We are a generation who receives more content than any generation before. Previous generations could not read enough books to get what you and I get on the regular through constant news cycle, through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, 
through being able to Google anything, through listening to podcasts, through going to conferences, content, 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 content. And what is the nature of that content? It's always a message of wisdom. Here's how life works best. Hey, here's the key to success. Here's the secret to having a fill in the blank. That's the message. That's the wisdom that the world is constantly pushing toward us. So don't be surprised when it happens that we come into the church and we begin to say, I want something that nobody else has got. And we begin to value Bible study and sermons only to the degree that we learn something or hear something we never heard before. You want to know what that fosters among preachers? Creativity. And I'm not called to be creative with the Bible. I'm called to be faithful to the Bible. Creativity is trying to see something that no one else has seen, and chances are if no one's seen it in 2,000 years, it ain't there. And so if I start saying, I've got a secret for you, you should run. You should run. But yet that's how people gain an audience. That's how you grow a crowd. That's how you get more subscribers. That's how you get more downloads is by saying, I've got something you want. Come to me and get it. But Jesus says a different message. He says, I'm here. He says, the only sign that's gonna be given to you is the sign of Jonah. And that sign is gonna be shown on the cross. You see, the sign of Jonah is also gonna be revealed in the Lord's Supper that we're gonna take in just a moment. That Jesus would suffer and die, his body crucified, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was saying to them, this is what you need. I am what you need. I'm what you need. And faith family today, Jesus is what we need in a day when we are constantly being tempted to believing that what I need is some more material stuff. In a day when we're like, man, what, what is everybody listening to? What's everybody reading? I, I, need, I don't wanna miss out. We have Christ and Christ is enough. Christ is the wisdom of God. And you say, well, so what do I do, Chad? Do I just sit down and, and just, you know, Jesus, and just start imagining what Jesus might be? No. You sit down and you open your Bible and you begin reading who Jesus is. You begin positioning yourself in God's word, saying, Jesus, I need, and only you can supply. And you begin to come to his word hungry for Jesus. And Jesus himself begins to feed you because his word is living and it's active. See, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We become a people of his word. This is how we become nourished. 
We, we don't come to the Lord's Supper and say, this bread and this cup. No, we come to this because this says to come to this and to remember what he has done. This reminds us of the sign of Jonah. And if you're here today and you have trusted Christ, you have what is most needed. You have what he was saying then was needed by all. But today, if you're here, I want you to know that if you right now were pierced by that message of a day of judgment, that one day you will stand before the living God and that thought terrifies you because you have no clue if you will be ready. I want you to know the only way that you will be ready to stand before him in the day of judgment is by having received what his son did for you. His son sees you. His son died for you. His son rose for you. And all who confess their sin and turn to him shall be saved. So if you're here today, I want you to consider these elements. Consider them fresh. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, please consider that his body was given for you, his blood shed for you. And give your life fully to Christ today. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning to be in your word. I thank you, Father, that that Jesus sees us squarely. He knows that we are an evil generation, which is not easy to receive. It wasn't easy then either. It caused people to walk away. Well, if that's what Jesus thinks of me. But what Jesus truly thought of us was accurate. He saw us perfectly. He sees us perfectly, and yet he died. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can come to this time and remember what is pointing to the sign of Jonah, the body and the blood of Christ, and to do so with joy, knowing that Christ gave his life for us, knowing that we were an evil generation in need of forgiveness. Father, forgive us for how we turn, just like them then, and demand a sign rather than the sign that was given of your love for us, rather than the Savior who was given for us, rather than the Lord who is meant to reign over our lives. Father, may this be a time of focusing again on the goodness and the provision of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.